Wouldn't mind taking the word of God, please, and turning with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Well, today we will be leaving the first section of the body of this letter, which was the reassurance of the Philippians of Paul's joyful condition. We'll be entering into a different section of the book of Philippians. And this section will be from chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 18. 1, verse 27, to 2, verse 18. So, we'll begin reading with verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me and now here to be in me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who? being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. And our reading there this morning, we believe that God will bless the reading of His Word. Let's ask God for His help in the message. Our Father in Heaven, we read here that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that He is Lord. Oh, Lord, we think about that day when every single human being will see Jesus for who He really is. Not humiliated upon a cross, but exalted in the heavenly glory 
and they will all bow before him. Lord, today may we see something of him. Bless, please, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. As I, note, as I noted at the outset, we're moving into a new section of the book of Philippians. And you remember that the first section had to do with Paul reassuring the Philippians of his joyful condition. And so Paul wrote to them and he said, The gospel's advancing. Even though I'm being opposed, Christ is preached. And therefore, I'm rejoicing, even though I'm suffering. And then he goes on to look towards his, tri- his trial. And he says, look, whether I live or I die, I'm rejoicing. And this section really, you could say, was very autobiographical. There was a lot of usages of the letter I. I, I, I. Paul was describing his own experience in prison, showing them that far from them having to despair about what's going on, they should rejoice because the gospel's advancing and Paul's rejoicing because he's going to magnify Christ. But from chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 18, Paul turns his attention away from himself to the Philippians. And this section is very, very different. It's sermonic. It's full of exhortations. The Apostle Paul now turns and he's saying, As I rejoice to magnify Christ, so I want you to magnify Christ. In your church. So this whole section is full of Paul exhorting, urging the Philippians to magnify Christ. If we call the first division Paul's reassuring or Paul reassures the believers of his joyful condition, this section we could title thus, Paul urges the Philippians to live gospel-worthy lives. Paul urges the Philippians to live gospel-worthy lives. Now, why do I title it this way? I want you to see the flow of this section. Beginning with verse 27, Paul says, Only, this is what I want from you. This is what I desire. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now that is the statement on which the whole section hangs. That's the key phrase. Let your conversation, the way you live, be as it becometh, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as Paul continues, he explains what this looks like. Verses 27 to 30, he's going to tell them, it looks like a steadfast church. It looks like a unified church. It looks like a fearless church in the face of opposition. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he's going to further emphasize, you need to be a church that's in unity, and you need to be a church that's humble, Philippi. And then he launches into one of the most glorious expositions of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. And then after he explains the gospel of Christ, in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, in the light of this gospel, I want you to obey. And he does this applying the gospel to verse 18. Now, after verse 18, he is going to talk about his companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So that's why we're stopping this section at verse 18. But watch the flow. Paul goes, I want your life to be worthy of the gospel. And then he gives them some imperatives. Do this. Be steadfast, be unified, etc. And then he goes into this glorious exposition of what? The gospel. And then he applies the gospel. So this whole section is focused on live in the light of the gospel. Why does Paul, after he says, be a unified church, Philippi, be a humble church, why does he go into the gospel? Why does he describe Jesus as he was humiliated and died and rose and exalted? Why does he go through the gospel? Because he's saying, this is your pattern, Philippi. And 
this gospel has implications for your life, which we'll look at. So, Paul urges the Philippians to live gospel-worthy lives. And I want to draw your attention to that phrase in verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. We're just going to focus on that phrase today, only. Because we cannot understand this section if we don't understand this phrase. In fact, we cannot understand Paul's doctrine of sanctification if we don't understand this phrase. Sanctification is simply a big word that means the believers being conformed, being made more like Jesus. Anybody who's saved is going to be made more like Jesus day by day. They will hate their sin more and more, and they will love righteousness more and more. They'll have more and more victory over sin, putting it to death, and more and more victory in living to Christ in righteous, in his in conformity to his righteous law. If we're going to understand anything about that, we have to understand this phrase. So, I want us to look at gospel-worthy living this morning. If we're going to look at gospel-worthy living, we have to define the gospel. So, what is the gospel? The first thing we notice about this word gospel is something that we all know. It means literally good news. Good news. It is a message. Good news. It's It's about something that has happened outside of you, something that has already taken place, and it is a good thing that has taken place. It is good. In fact, it's good for all men. It's good news for all men. Well, what is this good news about? The closest place that we can come to in the New Testament to a definition of the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 1 through 4, we find a definition of the gospel. The Apostle Paul says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. You receive the gospel, you stand in the gospel, you're saved through this gospel. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. So if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, if you apostatize from the gospel, it shows that you believed in vain. Your, your faith was not a real faith. For I delivered unto you, this is the gospel, first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If your preaching the quote-unquote gospel does not include Christ dying for sin, being buried and rising up from the dead, it's not gospel. That is the gospel. It is the good news that there is a Savior, Christ the Lord, The Son of God has become a man. He died for the sins of sinners. He was buried and He was raised up from the dead. That's the gospel and that's what was preached. And one thing becomes clear when you look at Paul's definition. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, of course, the gospel does include how we receive Christ. How do we receive Christ? By faith. By trusting in His work and in His person. We receive salvation by trusting in what Jesus Christ, who He is, excuse me, and what He's done. And that faith, if it's a real faith, is a repentant faith. It's a faith whereby the person who reaches out to receive Christ, turns away from a life of sin. The person who says, I believe in Jesus, but I want to live my life the way I want to live. I want to live in sin. I don't want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. That's not true faith. You're turning from sin to God in Christ. And so the gospel does include that. 
But the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. I want us to understand the facts, the mere facts that Jesus died, was buried, and rose. The mere facts are not the gospel. If you divorce those facts from the person, as if you could. Simply saying, I am presenting to you facts. Believe these facts. No. We're presenting a person. A crucified, risen Jesus. You can believe in a bunch of facts, but not believe in Christ. You know, there are a lot of people that if you ask them, do you believe that Jesus died for sin? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus was buried? Sure. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I do. But they have never personally received Jesus Christ, the person. They have no relationship with Him. They don't live after His law. They don't love Him. They don't worship Him. Because they've merely come to a set of facts. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ. We cannot abstract. We cannot divorce what Jesus has done from Jesus. And in fact, you can't even divorce the blessings that come from what Christ has done from Christ. As I've said before, you can't simply say, well, Jesus comes and He offers forgiveness to people. Or Jesus comes and He offers a righteous standing to people. That's not quite the case. You don't get forgiven through Christ. You get forgiven in Christ. Forgiveness is not a commodity that you can receive outside of Jesus. As if He just purchased it. As if He went into the store and He laid down some money and He bought forgiveness. And He came and He said, hey, here's forgiveness. If you'd like it, come take it. No. He says, here is me. I am the perfect Savior. I have borne the guilt of sin. I have been crushed by the Father. I am the covenant. In me you have forgiveness. In me you have salvation. In me you have redemption. In me you have adoption. In me you have all these blessings. You're blessed in Him, not apart from Him. You cannot divorce the blessings from the person. We preach Jesus. Christ. And it's amazing to read the book of Acts and the sermons of those apostles in the early church. You'll notice they never once said, if you go read the book of Acts, never once said Jesus died for you. It's interesting. They never once say that. Why? Well, what was important to them was to offer Jesus. They were saying, hey, here's a, here's a Savior. He's fully paid the penalty. He's fully done everything that's necessary. He's risen from the dead. Here's Jesus. Take Jesus. That was the thrust of their message. You won't even see them saying, hey, we come to offer you just forgiveness. What was the core, the center of their message? Christ. Christ. Christ is risen. Christ has died. Christ is a saving Savior. The Lord Jesus has done everything. And that really is the gospel. John Calvin said, Christ is clothed in the gospel. The words of the message are just like clothing. Jesus is what's being presented. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Is Jesus Christ Lord? Have you come in contact with the person Do you know something of love and adoration for the person? Or have you merely tried to receive forgiveness? Or tried to receive something from Him? You cannot have anything from Him. It is all in Him. Jesus is the gospel. And so the gospel tells us that everything that needed to be done has been done. It's been done. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. There is a law. You think of the Ten Commandments. 
The Bible makes very clear that they that do, that live by the law, excuse me, they that do the things of the law, they must live by the law. Meaning, if you're going to go the way of the law to have a right standing with God, you have to perfectly obey that law. And you will be judged by that law. There is not one human being that has perfectly kept the law of God. And we know that very well. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, that in the eyes of God, there's not one person that's done anything good, anything worthy of any merit in the eyes of God. Because if you're not saved, you're doing it either for yourself or some other person, but not for God. And you don't love Christ and you're rejecting Jesus. But this law that could not be obeyed by us was kept by Jesus. He came in our place as our representative, as our substitute, and He perfectly kept every single jot and tittle of the law. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And we feel the guilt and the burden, I can't live a perfect life. God's always looking down with me and He's always frowning. He's always just... Just looking at me saying, you're just worthless and you're wretched. Look at you and your sin. But Jesus lived a perfect life. And the gospel says, in Jesus, God looks at me as if I've lived the perfect life. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. But then the law also said, punishment, punishment must be given to anybody who breaks this law. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, He took our punishment. He took the punishment of the law. He bore the guilt of sin upon Him. He was crushed by His Father and He died because the wages of sin is death. And because He lived and He died and then He even appears in heaven, the Bible says, with His wounds before the Father. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus stands before the Father with his wounds. And all the Father sees is a law covered by the blood of Jesus. No more condemnation. No more wrath. No more guilt. No more bondage. That's the message of the gospel. It's been done. The gospel is not the message, you need to do this in order to be right with God. It is saying, this has been done that you might be right with God. To tell us die, it is finished. Finished. There's a wonderful historical uh, account of a man named William Holland who is a friend of John and Charles Wesley and one day, one night, excuse me, he was reading or hearing read the words of Luther when Luther wrote, have, What have we then? Nothing to do? What have we then? Nothing to do? Are you saying that we have nothing that we have to do? No, nothing. But only accept of Him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Luther is saying, the gospel's call is not for you to do some, to be a better person and then, then God will accept you. Be a better person, God will accept you. It's no. Recognize that you're a bad person. You're a wretched person. You've broken the law. But Jesus is a Savior. He's kept the law. He's borne God's wrath. And He is willing to save anybody who will come to Him. It's full. It's free. You can be forgiven. You can be accepted in Jesus. And when William Holland learned this, he said, And at that moment, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. Such was the joy of somebody who felt burdens lifted off of them. You have burdens, burdens of guilt, burdens of things you've done, 
burdens weighing you down, Jesus lifts burdens. The gospel lifts burdens. The gospel frees the soul. The gospel makes someone free. I was standing on the dock by um, our house looking out on the lake and I saw these birds just flying through the air and they're always out there, so many birds. And they just seem so free, just soaring through the sky. And I thought to myself, I should be so much more free. My heart should be able to soar so much more than the bird just soaring through the sky because I'm free. I'm free from condemnation. I'm free from wrath. Oh, happy condition. I'm free. God loves me. I'm free. Free from the law. Not free from the law as a rule of life, but free from the law as it condemns me. This is the gospel. Jesus and his work on the behalf of sinners. And the second thing we need to see from this text, the gospel's implications for living. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. The phrase, let your conversation. Okay, conversation is an old English term. It's simply talking about the manner of your life. But the Greek word that's used to translate let your conversation is a word that actually speaks about one's citizenship. And Paul was using this word specifically to draw their attention to the fact that they were heavenly citizens. He does this in chapter 3, verse 20. For our conversation, conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so what Paul is saying is, you are a citizen of heaven. And you need to live as a citizen of heaven. Yeah, you're a citizen of earth. Of, of this earth. Yeah, you, you live in a city, you live in a town, you li- but you have a dual citizenship. If you're a Christian, you're not of this world. You have a citizen in the heavenlies, a citizenship, and you have a citizenship here on earth. You're a pilgrim passing through. And the people of God need to remember we are not of this world. Our citizenship is not only here. This is not it. And so the Apostle Paul says, I want you to live as citizens. How do you live as citizens? You live as citizens of heaven as your citizens of Rome by living as it becomes the gospel of Christ, by living worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This tells us something very important. The gospel has implications for our life. Paul did not say, I want you to live worthy of the law. I want you to live worthy of the gospel. Now the law, yes, we need to keep the law. But Paul says, live worthy of the gospel. The gospel. Now some people have the idea that the gospel is what you preach to people who aren't saved so they can get saved. But then the gospel doesn't really have any more any necessary impact on our lives after we get saved. The gospel is for evangelism. The gospel's not for the Christian life. But the gospel is for the Christian life. In fact, the gospel has very real implications for the Christian life. We see this in Galatians chapter 2. If you remember in Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles. Now when Paul came to find Peter doing that, What did he do? He rebuked him. And what did he tell him? Did he say, Peter, why are you eating with the Gentiles? You know that the law says this and this. He said, you are denying the gospel. You're denying the gospel. That's what he said. He goes on to describe the gospel. Know you that a man is not justified by the works of the law. And he's saying, Peter, the gospel that you profess to believe... It's not in the shape of the way you're acting. The gospel that you profess to believe doesn't work with your, in a way, racism towards Gentiles. The gospel says that we are all one in Jesus Christ. We have, by faith, all become children of God in Jesus Christ. And so when you treat the Gentiles a certain way, you're denying the gospel. That teaches us that the gospel has implications for our life. 
for our life. And Paul does the same thing here in Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You need to be humble, church. You need to be unified, church. Look at Jesus. What is he saying? Church, Philippi, you can't be divided and selfish and proud when you profess a gospel of a selfless, humble, loving Christ. To profess to hold to the gospel has implications for your life. That's why he draws their attention to the gospel itself. And it's very interesting to note that in Romans 6.17, Paul uses this phrase. He says, the form of doctrine. I won't go into that passage in depth, but he's saying that you have received this form of doctrine, obeyed this form of doctrine. That doctrine there, the word doctrine, is referring to the gospel. And the interesting thing about that little word form is it, it is the, the word used to mold metals. As if you're pouring metal into a mold. The form, the mold of the gospel. And so Paul is saying there, you, when you came to Christ, you are being pressed into the mold of the gospel. Not simply pressed into the law, into obedience to the law, but the mold of the gospel so that your life will be shaped by the gospel. You will look gospel. You will act gospel. You will think gospel. You will have a heart attitude that is gospel-shaped. It's so important, Paul says, that you understand this, that he takes 5 through 11 of chapter 2 to launch into the gospel. Because your life needs to be shaped by the gospel. So the gospel has implications for our life. And the third thing from this text is that we need to see the pattern and power of the gospel. There is a very obvious pattern that I have noted here. Verse 27, Paul says, I want you to think about the gospel. Let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel. And then, be steadfast, be unified, be fearless, be humble, etc. And then again, look at the gospel. Jesus, He came, He died, He was risen, He's exalted. And then, obey in verse 12. This is the pattern. Gospel, then live in the light of the gospel. Gospel, then live in the light of the gospel. This is what Paul does throughout his letters. In the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, it's the gospel. It's all that Christ has purchased for His people and all that He has done for His people. In chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, therefore, because of all that I've just said about Christ, all the blessings of the gospel, I beseech you, therefore, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. Then he launches into application. Gospel first, application. Gospel is always paired with commands. He does the same thing in Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3. All that we have in Christ, all the blessings we have in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, you walk worthy of the vocation with your call, worthy of the gospel. One through three, gospel. Four through six, live in the light of the gospel. Same thing in the book of Colossians. Colossians one through two, here's the glory of Christ. Here's the preeminence of Christ. Here's what Jesus has done for you. Three and four, live in the light of this. Live in the light of this gospel. Gospel, then live in the light of the gospel. Why does Paul do this? Brothers and sisters, the law, the law of God, the commands of God, divorced from Jesus, puts us back under Sinai. Do this, be like this, act like this, divorced from from the gospel, divorced from Christ, brings us back under the guilt and bondage of Sinai. The law has no power to move us to obey. 
it can only show us what we ought to do. It has no power to move us to obey. Now, I am not saying that the law has no place in the Christian's life. We are bound by the law. The law is a rule of life. Jeremiah chapter 31, spoken about in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 8, the new covenant. I will write my law on your heart. What is that law? It's the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. We are to keep the law. We're to obey the law of God. We're bound by the law as a rule of life. But the law for us is not a way of salvation. The law for us is in a totally different relationship now than when before we had Christ. So once the law was a terror to us, once we were looking at the law, I can't keep it, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I can't keep it, I'm under guilt, I'm under bondage, God's looking at me, and He's just he's angry with me, I can't keep this law. But once I become a Christian, I come into a new relationship to the law. Because now my husband is Jesus Christ. You can look at this in Romans chapter 7. Not the law anymore. I'm now newly related to the law. Now the law is my joy. Now the law is how I please my, my Jesus. The law is my joyful rule of life. It gives me joy to keep it because I've been given a new nature. I want to keep the law. I love to keep the law. And I can try and keep it because I'm not afraid that if I fail, I'm going to go to hell. Because now I have favor with God in Jesus. I'm accepted. So now I keep the law. So the law and the gospel are complementary. They're not against one another. They're complementary to one another. Paul talks about how the law was fulfilled in the gospel. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. The law cannot give you the power to obey. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And for sin condemns him in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So because I'm saved now, I have the, the power by the Spirit given to me to obey this law. And my heart is filled with gratitude for what Christ has done. So I'm not trying to obey the law to get rid of my guilt. I'm trying to obey the law to please my Savior. Because I love the law. Because I love Jesus. And so the law and the gospel, again, are complementary. They're not against each other. And this brings us back to why Paul has this pattern. Because the gospel has a veritable power in our Christian lives. How are you motivated to obey? How are you empowered to obey? You must have your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you're not looking at Christ, then you're trying to obey in your own power, and you're going to become a miserable mess. And if you're not thinking about Christ and what He's done, you won't be motivated by gratitude and love. So the, the gospel has a veritable power. And I want to read you a quote by John Owen. Listen carefully to this. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. Think through that statement. This is what Paul's doing. Christians see themselves, I'm not what I ought to be. I need to put more and more and more and more effort into my life. I need to try harder and harder and harder and pull up my bootstraps and, and press harder and harder. Now listen, please understand, don't misunderstand me. We are to strive after holiness. We are to press after conformity. We are to try hard. But if we merely try hard, if we merely, by our own strength, seek to just be better Christians, always trying and trying, we just can't do it, Owen says, you've got 
the horse before the, before the cart. Or the cart before the horse, however you say that. Your greatest problem is that you don't understand your privileges. That's why Paul takes Ephesians 1 through 3, all you have in Christ. Why? Because when you understand all you have in Christ, your heart is overwhelmed with joy and gratitude and love. And let me say this, please. This is why if there is no assurance of faith in any degree in a Christian, he cannot, he cannot live the Christian life the way that God has designed. And that is why Romans chapter 6 says, Paul says very, very clearly, that you are to reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And then, then, therefore, he says, you're to not let sin reign in your mortal body. If you can't reckon yourself dead, how can you fight sin? If you're not... If you don't feel the fact that God loves you in Christ, that God has blessed you in Christ, that you're chosen in Christ, you're adopted, you've been reconciled, how, what's going to motivate you to serve? Where's your power? It's guilt and it's bondage and that's all that it is. It's legalism. It's legalism. But Paul always makes, makes very, takes great care Privileges must be understood alongside of commands. You cannot divorce the law from Jesus. As I've said many times, the law is always understood in the context of my relationship to Jesus Christ. The law is not this list of things I'm supposed to do or not do. It's in my relationship with Jesus. This is what He has given me whereby I please Him. And so yes, the more I know Christ, the more I want to obey the law. What comes... What comes first? We talked about joy. Joy, does joy come before obedience or does, is obedient, a joy a, a fruit of obedience? Joy is a fruit of obedience, but joy in Christ precedes obedience. Rejoicing in Jesus, joying in Jesus, loving, adoring, worshiping, treasuring, being satisfied in Christ precedes obedience as well as follows obedience. There are some that are trying so hard to obey, thinking that I need to obey so that I can, I can feel joy again. Run to Christ. See Jesus. Look at Him. Look at all He's done. And then in the light of that, obey. Strive after holiness. Yes, be the holiest man or woman you can possibly be. Be as much like Christ as you can, but never try to keep the law outside of its context. Always understand the privileges in the light of it. Thomas Chalmers, an old theologian, talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. What he was talking about was every man and woman and child, every human being has, um, has affections and an object of that affection. Before we're saved, even in the Christian life, sometimes the object of that affection is sin. If we're going to dethrone sin... We have to change the object of our affection. Not just try to stop sinning. Change the object of affection. Let your affection be Jesus. Let Christ be your affection. See, sin at its root is a lie. The deceitfulness of sin the Bible talks about. It's a lie. It says sin is more satisfying than Christ. Sin is more glorious than Christ. Sin is better than Christ. If you think little of Jesus you will inadvertently, consequently, think much of sin. If you think much of Jesus, sin and the desire for it will wither. Jesus must be the center. Jesus Christ must be the center of life. And the gospel, the gospel is the power. It's one of the great powers of sanctification. I just want to give you a couple of examples of this before we close how this would play out in life, first of all, in the preaching of a church. Let's say the preacher wants to get his people to read their Bibles and pray. The man who preaches without the gospel, not preaching Christ, would say something like this. You need to read your Bible and you need to pray because if you don't read your Bible and you don't pray, you're going to fall into sin you're going to wreck your life. I don't understand why Christians don't read their Bibles and pray. You can watch TV. 
You can spend time doing what you want to do, but you don't spend time reading the Bible and praying. Read the Bible and pray. And the person who sits there will respond in this way. I should read my Bible and pray to get rid of the guilt I feel. I should read my Bible and pray so the preacher thinks well of me. I should read my Bible and pray so the people in my church think well of me. But the second kind of preaching might be something like this. You should read your Bible and pray. Because Jesus speaks in his word and he loves you. He died so that he could commune with you. He waits for you in prayer. How could you not want to meet with him? He's waiting for you. I heard the other day, I think it was a quote from one of the Puritans saying, um, Christ actually has anticipated communing with us from eternity. Look at what he's done for you. Read your Bible and pray. Look at what he's accomplished for you. Look at the forgiveness and the mercy he's shown you. Read your Bible and pray. Puts it in a different context, a different light. Evangelism. You need to give out the gospel. You need to go knock doors. You need to go do these things. Is that true? Yes, true. But you know what can happen if you're not careful? I better be evangelizing because if I don't, the preacher's not going to be happy with me. I better be evangelizing because if I don't, the people are going to think poorly of me or I'm going to think poorly of me. Evangelize because you love Jesus. Focus on Him. When love for Christ fills your heart, you'll be spreading the gospel. You will be. No one's going to have to beat you over the head, right? And, and that goes for, for anybody. Anybody. In the context of the gospel, in the context of Jesus Christ. I think of something like, oh, for example, depression. Somebody, uh, there's a story about a girl who was, um, who was depressed. Um, she was in an institution and, and she, because she wanted to please her parents. And she couldn't please her parents, so she went to the psychologist. The psychologist said, you know what you need to do? You need to go to school. You need to become a businesswoman. You need to make a lot of money so that your self-worth is not in what your parents think, but your self-worth can then be in the fact that you are an accomplished businesswoman. And she said, so you're saying that instead of my life falling apart when my parents don't think highly of me, I should let my life fall apart when my business ventures don't work out. So, I don't understand, she said. Anything I put my self-worth in, it could, it could collapse. Where should her self-worth be? Christ. Christ. It's not enough just to tell her, you should, you should think this way. Or you should. You've got to put it in the context of, of Jesus. Christ is, is her self-worth. Christ. You don't want to, it's, like, it's hard for me to live. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. I'm excited about life, even when it's hard. And, and, I, and I'm not smiling today, but I have an opportunity to magnify Him and to know Him. That's why I'm alive. It's, it's Christ-centered. Um, Paul does this with marriage, brothers and sisters. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul doesn't just say, hey, husbands, you're not treating your wives well. And they probably weren't. You're not being gracious to your wives. He says, be as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In the context of the gospel, be like Jesus Christ. Um, forgiveness, I think, of chapter 4, verse 32 of Ephesians. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake. See how he's bringing the gospel in again. Forgive, why? In the light of the gospel. Look how much he's forgiven you for. Forgive. Or as a husband, look at what a wonderful husband is to his church. Look at how he loves his church. Look at how he gave himself for his church. Now, be that husband in the light of Jesus and his love for you and what he's done. And you see, if this kind of spirit, there, there can get a spirit, not only in preaching, in counseling or whatever, and I'm, not, I'm sure you've, you've been in services or places you've heard, I, I think of one church um, the pastor is going on and on and on and on about how you should read your Bible. And a young guy I knew is sitting on the front row and he's hanging his head in shame. And the preacher actually called him out in the middle of, in the service. You know, are you going to read your Bible? Are you going to do it? Oh, yes, sir. I, I know I ought to. I know I ought to. I know I ought to. I know I should. 
I'll try harder. I'll try to do better. I'll try to be better. I don't think he's gotten better. What's his, what's, what's his great need, that young man? His great need is to treasure Jesus. His great need is to know Christ and love Christ, understand his privileges in Christ, and walk with Christ, have communion with Christ. The outflow of that will be he wants to read his Bible. And, and you can say read your Bible, but it has to be in the context of the gospel as well. And this can trickle into a home as well. You have to be careful. If, if, a, if a man, um, he, he is, he's, has this legal spirit, and he might treat his children that way or his wife that way, you're not being the way you ought to be. You need to be better. Instead of understanding, I need to show grace. I need to be patient. I need to lavish love. I need to point my family to Jesus. Not just law. Gospel-contained law. Gospel-submerged law. That's the only way. And understanding this if you understand that, you've understood much of one of the key notes of Paul's doctrine of the Christian life and how a Christian grows in Christ. We end there this, eve, this morning. I trust that God will bless His Word to our souls. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Christ and that we are free from the law happy condition that we have no condemnation help us to keep that law Lord help us to be holy because we're full of gratitude and love and joy in Jesus oh Lord oh that we'd be more acquainted with our privileges oh that we may be more near to Christ bless everybody today Lord in this service for Jesus sake Amen